It's a sad fact that the English that millions of people learn in classrooms all over the world doesn't often match the reality of English outside the classroom. One person who knows the reality of English as a global language is Heather Hansen. She teaches professionals from the world's biggest companies how to successfully communicate in English all over the world. And the secret to successful global communication? Well, it's not about speaking like a native speaker or having an RP accent or using standard English. This is a powerful interview and I hope that it will make teachers and students question their assumptions. Heather Hansen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to discuss all of this with you. Me too. Um, so, so for the people who don't know you and your work, could you just talk a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm originally from California and I've lived abroad for 18 years now in both Denmark and Singapore. I'm based in Singapore now. I've spent a combined 10 years here and about eight years in Denmark. So I speak Danish fluently. I'm married to a Dane and uh, I've been really interested in language, English language, and how we use it as a tool across borders and cultures. And I've really been studying that and teaching it for the last 20 years, basically. Um, and it's something that's very near and dear to me. And I, I really try to to, we'll get into all of the details of it, but, but yeah, I run a corporate training firm and do a lot of teaching, training, coaching around global English communication skills uh, in global workplaces. The, the moment that somebody says to me, um, I work in a, in a communications kind of company that specializes in like corporate training, of course, all of the immediate associations are, she's the kind of person who wants people to speak perfect English with with a, with like the, the posh accent and, you know, the, with perfect grammar. But actually, that's not what you're about at all, right? Not at all. But I wasn't always that way, Christian. It was actually one of my clients that woke me up a little bit. When I had first, I was about two years into my business out here in Singapore. Uh, he was president of Greater Asia of a large American multinational. And I, he had called me in to help him with pronunciation and presentation skills. So in our consultation and everything, we talked about that. And, you know, I noticed a lot of grammar errors, right? Big no-nos. And I thought, ooh, this is very bad. And I said, now, what about your grammar? You know, do you, you know, very tactfully, uh, what about your grammar? You know, is there anything you'd like to talk about with that or look at? And he just looks at me like, What's wrong with you? You got my grammar. I don't care about my grammar. As long as people understand me, that's good enough. And I mean, for an English teacher, and this is me, you know, over 10 years ago, it was like getting stabbed in the heart. Like, what do you mean you don't care about grammar? You know, you just, that can't be right. You have to speak properly, right? Uh, but that was when my eyes were opened in that one statement where I thought, you know what, you're right. It really it doesn't matter. As long as you're understood, that's all that matters. You're sitting here, the president of Greater Asia for an American multinational. You bring in more money in your region than actually the whole American company. And 
yeah, obviously your grammar doesn't really matter, does it? Because everybody understands you, they know what you want and what you need, and you're an effective leader. You are effective in your communication. And that is what is important. Uh, and that was what really took me off in another direction where I started really seriously uh, studying English as a lingua franca, as a common language, how we were using English across borders, how English was really being used in real life business, because it isn't spoken out of a textbook. I don't speak with an RP accent. I, I don't even know what my accent is. I go home and they tell me I talk funny. So who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, I think some of the interesting things that you talk about um, like on your website and, and also the, in the videos that, that I've seen you in is, is the fact that now that English is, is a global language, um, nobody kind of owns it anymore. And, and maybe that's a difficult concept for a lot of teachers and, you know, to kind of accept. It's so, it's such a complex issue. It, it's really a whole industry issue. And I know that you've said this as well um, in, in some of your previous videos and statements, but it is, it's from the top down. The whole industry is broken. We've been enculturated to think a certain way. We've been told by our teachers, by our bosses, by our parents that speaking proper English in a certain kind of English is the only way to be successful. And to a certain degree in our societies, because we've all been raised with those ideas, it also, we see it mirrored in society. So yes, the hiring manager is only gonna hire you if you have good grammar and you have the right accent. We, within our own native languages, within the US, of course there are, we have so many different accents. And we know that if you have the Southern Bell accent and you try to make it in New York, I have a, a close colleague who now lives in the UK. She lived in New York in a very male dominated business with a very strong Southern Bell accent. And she said, no one took her seriously. This isn't just a native speaker, non-native speaker kind of thing. We do it in our own languages. And I think every language does it to some degree. We have this massive, almost invisible discrimination going on around accent, what it means, uh, and what kind of identity you have, whether you're educated or not, whether you're rich or not, what kind of socioeconomic status you have. And, and it's so deeply ingrained that we don't even know it's there. And that's the whole problem, because teachers then take it into the classroom without realizing it's there. When a student comes and says, I want to sound like a native speaker, I want to speak like a native speaker, they don't even realize the underlying discrimination and how dangerous that statement is. And then they end up doing things and saying things that reinforce it. And, and they don't even realize it because this isn't really being talked about. There are those of us in the know, the researchers, the people in the ivory towers are talking about this. You know, The people at the top levels of the teaching associations, we talk about this all the time, but there are thousands, if not millions of teachers out there who, who have just, you know, gone off to um, get their CELTA or, or whatever teaching credential and, and maybe haven't ever learned that actually out in the big wide world, it, it's a little bit different. Um, but everything is context specific as well. A, a learner learning English in America or in the UK is going to have different needs and wants than uh, an English learner in Singapore or somebody, you know, uh, in India or, or anywhere in Europe, for example. So, so it is a very complex topic, subject, discussion. We could be here all day talking about this. Yeah, I mean, um, 
I think another thing that maybe would be surprising for people to learn is the ratio between the amount of people who are native English speakers and the amount of people who who use English every day as a second language. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically five to one. I mean, we have about 400 million native speakers and we're now estimating around 2 billion non-native who are uh, learning the language. And even, even these statements of native and non-native, they're so arbitrary now. Um, technically, according to textbooks, we would consider Singaporeans to speak to be non-native English speakers. But that's kind of ridiculous because if you ask any of them, they'll say that's their best language. They've grown up with three, four, five languages, dialects, everything else. They operate in English. It's their business language, their education language. And yet they're classified linguistically as non-native speakers. Well, who exactly creates those classifications? Uh, just because they weren't born speaking English and they started using English when they went to daycare or started in kindergarten, then uh, that means actually, no, they're not native. It, it's very, very arbitrary. So I don't even like using the terms, but unfortunately we don't have any new terms to use instead. And, and we need to come up with that. Sometimes I'll, I'll say, you know, advanced speakers versus intermediate or, or learners, or I don't know, it's, it's a difficult one. <laughs> we, we still don't have words for it. Uh, but, but the people who are learning English as a second, third, fourth, fifth language, we know that there are about 2 billion of those. And the great, great majority of English conversations in the world today are between people who do not have English as their first language. We know that, we know that in business. Any room I walk into in Singapore, it is truly English as a lingua franca. It is people with, with maybe five different ethnic backgrounds, five different first languages, and we're using English as our common language to communicate. And when that is the situation, the rules are very different than what you learned in your textbook. Uh, and I think that we're shortchanging our students and our learners when we aren't making that very clear to them and preparing them for the real world and international English and global English settings. But what about the the critics? And and the, the, for, for me, these are the voices that I see all the time whenever I make you know content about this subject, is they say, well, we can't just accept bad English because then it's going to kind of ruin English. Or if we accept that people can kind of speak however they want, then how are we all going to understand each other? Yeah, it's like the doomsday scenario, right? Like nobody's going to be able to speak English anymore. Uh, yeah, this is, I, I've had a lot of negative feedback about this as well, especially after my TEDx, which is titled Two Billion Voices, How to Speak Bad English Perfectly. And everybody says, oh, but we can't accept bad English. It's like, well, listen to the talk, because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when people come to me and say, Heather, fix me. My English is so bad. It's so horrible. And, and I sit there and have to question them and challenge them on that and say, what do you mean it's bad? I understand everything you're saying. You're communicating perfectly well. Uh, you're, the, <laughs> you're the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. What do you mean you have bad English, right? The definition of bad and good uh, has been so warped. And uh, like I was saying, you know, teach, it's, it's input they've received from other people, from teachers, from bosses, from colleagues, from friends. Uh, you know, I think about even when I speak Danish, the kind of ridicule I get on my Danish accent, <laughs> it's, it's pretty horrible, right? I, I have a very strong American accent on my Danish and everyone points it out to me. So I really understand that feeling and I can understand why a learner would say, I want to sound like a native speaker, but it usually does not mean they want to sound like an American or a Brit. They usually don't even know what that means. If I ask them, which accent do you want? They say, oh, well, I want to sound like you. I want to sound British. 
uh, you know, I'm American, right? I mean, often they don't even know the difference between the accents. What they really want, if you dig a little bit deeper and you have a conversation with them, what they really want is to speak clearly. They want people to understand them. They want to have respect. They want to belong. These are the things they really want. It has nothing to do with how they sound. And, um, but going back to your, your question, since I'm taking us off track, this, this argument of, of, you know, you're going to ruin the language, that's really not what it's about. Of course, we all have the rules of grammar in English. We all need to reach, you know, an intermediate level to be able to really work and, and do business in English. Uh, but once we've hit that level, then it becomes more about the clarity um, and, and the simplicity of the language, not using the huge flowery words, not using the idioms. Oh my gosh, how English teachers love to teach idioms. And they, they just, they, oh, they hate it when I say, stop teaching idioms. Why are we teaching this? Like, yes, okay, if you want to understand, then I'll teach it. And when a student begs me for idioms, I'll say, um, okay, I'll teach you some idioms. Promise me you will never, ever use them. I don't ever want to hear them come out of your mouth. I will teach them to you so you can understand all the native speakers who do not know how to communicate properly in international settings. Because native speakers are the ones who go in and use all the idioms, the sports analogies, all of the slang. And the reason the non-natives feel that they need to learn those things is because they're getting lost in the conversation. But what really needs to happen is all the people with English as a first language who go into these discussions and even very high level advanced um, second, third, fourth language speakers, they need to go into these situations and remember to accommodate and adapt to the people in the room. It, it's a two-way street. It's not a competition of who has the biggest vocabulary. It's a competition around who can be the best understood and do the best deal and make, you know, get business done. That's what we need to be focused on. We absolutely are not ruining the language. We're not stripping it of, of all its royal finesse. We, we are simply um, trying to communicate. That should be the goal of every interaction. And, and people who are speaking with each other, they're defining what that means in that moment, in that context. Whether you know a Chinaman speaking to a Frenchman is going to speak English completely different than you know a Dane speaking with an Indonesian here in Singapore, or a Korean speaking with a German in France. I mean, you're defining the language and and creating that um, that understanding in that context, and we have to look at it that way. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I think I went off on about three other topics within that answer. Uh, but but it's all tied together, you know, it really is. But but bottom line, no, we aren't ruining the language. Nothing's going to happen to English. Um, you know, we should be celebrating the fact that we're we're open to hearing more voices and we're we're learning more about the world around us because finally, you know, other people have a voice. Um, and and I think it's important we stop to listen to those voices, no matter if they're grammatically correct or not <laughs> correct from the textbook definition right yeah um i mean i i 100 agree with 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 everything you've said and and i think one of the really interesting things that you talk about is that in a conversation or in any setting where english is being used uh, you know as as a kind of tool for communication there's a responsibility not just on the pe person speaking but also there's a huge responsibility on the listener Right. Um, you know, it's funny because I don't think people realize how 
accents work, you know, the more contact that you have with an accent, the easier it becomes to understand. Uh, when I first landed in Singapore, it took me about three months to tune my ear to the accent here. I was completely unprepared. You know, this was back in 2006 when I moved here the first time. And I was very unprepared for, you know, I, I had heard they speak English. I was just expecting English. It's a very different kind of English. And it took me some time to tune my ear to it. But now I have absolutely no problem understanding anyone in Singapore, whether they're Malay or Indian or Chinese, and they all have slightly different ways of speaking. Uh, but, you know, the longer you have contact with an accent, the easier it is. So when an HR director of a Fortune 250 company calls me from Wisconsin and says, we want to hire a new CFO, we have an acting CFO, he's from France, but nobody can understand him, quote, nobody can understand him. And I think that's odd because, you know, he has to be pretty good to get to that level. And I say, well, send me his CV. I'd like to have a call. And I look at his CV. He lived eight years in London, London. 12 years in Asia, <laughs> but suddenly nobody can understand him in America. In, in little, who knows what town, Wisconsin, they can't understand him. And so I get him on the phone and, and sure enough, I'm like, wow, you know, you're probably a better speaker than anyone I've ever coached. And, um, but you're in a very specific context. And if we don't do some things differently, you're gonna lose your job. And that's what it came down to. That's how deep this accent discrimination is. Instead, what really needed to happen, and I mentioned this at the time, was let me come in and teach your top people how to better understand a French accent. We need more around accent um, understanding, accent recognition, instead of this idea of accent reduction, which I think is a very toxic, toxic word. Um, because it shouldn't be about reducing anybody's accent or identity. But, but this is the problem, right? That when we take, um, you know, this using as an example, this small group of Americans who were listening to him and had no contact with other French speakers, weren't familiar with the accent, then he's very hard to understand. Whereas put him in a more international environment with people who are very familiar with the accent and there's no issue at all. So this is why I'm, I'm yeah, I'm a huge proponent of this argument that, the listener needs to take some responsibility. We need to also tune our ears. If we want to be a part of the international community, speak with international people, do business across borders, then we also need to learn how to communicate, how to listen in a very different way. It's a different skill set than when you're at home having coffee with your family and friends in your, in your community where you were born and raised. Because then that accent, when I go home, that does come out a bit more, my California Valley girl, right? But when I'm away, it's, it's gone and forgotten um, because I've learned over time very naturally and organically that there were certain things I needed to change to be better understood myself and also certain things I needed to listen for so I could better understand others. Uh, and that takes some time and effort. And, and when people go into a conversation assuming they have some ownership over the language and I'm going to speak however I speak, it's your job to make me understand because you are the one speaking my language, and when, when that's the mentality, we run into big problems in global settings. And this is why all the research will even tell you that it's actually these native speakers going into international settings that are causing more problems in global business communication than the non-native speakers. They're doing great on their own, but enter a native speaker, the power dynamics change, uh, the conversation changes, 
and the confidence levels of the people who do not have English as their first language uh, decrease dramatically. So there are a lot, a, a lot of issues to address in those kinds of situations as well. About a year ago, I had a, a really bizarre experience um, because sometimes I work as an interpreter, uh, Spanish-English, and I went with a, with a Spanish guy to a, to a conference, right? And obviously at the conference, there was people from, um, from, you know, all over the world. And so they would speak to me in English, and then I would translate into Spanish for my, for my, for my client. And <laughs> one of the people at the conference was, was from the south of Spain, Right, so he was he was speaking Spanish, so and my client is Spanish, so they they were perfectly capable of communicating with each other, right? It's the same country, the same language, but because I was there, my client um, <laughs> kind of was just looking at me and waiting for me to translate the Spanish into my Spanish. So I was in this bizarre situation where someone was speaking to me in Spanish, I was repeating it in Spanish, and 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 at that moment. That's when I was like, wow, if, if you don't make the effort to understand, you can even be lost even in your own language. It's just insane. Yeah, it's really crazy. And I mean, and you definitely see that across the UK. I mean, the dialects are so incredibly different. Uh, and, and that's what's even funny, you know, is that all these textbooks and everything that come out of the UK and are all focused on this RP pronunciation, yet... Only what something? What does uh, David Crystal say? Something like five percent of the population, I think, actually, yeah, actually speaks RP, right? So, isn't this a disservice to our students if we are preparing them to go out in the world and all they can understand is RP English, and they've been taught that that's the proper pronunciation? How on earth are they going to communicate with people, even within the UK? Uh, and and this is a really big issue for for teachers. I think a lot of teachers also have very little confidence teaching pronunciation because guess what? None of us sound like the CDs, you know, we don't, none of us do. And, and so I think a lot of teachers lose confidence when teaching pronunciation. And that is also a shame. And even the native speakers lose confidence because they have an accent that's different. But I would say, you know, especially if you're in a, a country like the UK, you should be teaching the pronunciation, the variety of the language that is spoken in that area where those students are using it. That's what's important. That's what helps them to find belonging. That's what, uh, you know, helps them to succeed in that, in that society. Um, but there's just so much discrimination around the way we speak and communicate. It's, it, I find it really sad. And I think it, it's something that should be talked about a lot more uh, also at the corporate level in, in the area of diversity and inclusion. It's something that's forgotten. We talk about gender, we talk about race and ethnicity. We, we forget how language is also a massive problem when it comes to including people in their ideas and encouraging people to speak up and people having confidence to share their views when they sound different and are worried they'll face ridicule. So, so what do you think about this other kind of common idea um, in the industry, which, which kind of on the surface makes sense, which is we're going to teach people something which we've called standard English, and then standard English will be this thing that everybody understands. I think that there's some confusion because people think that there is some kind of one global English, like, well, I teach global English. Well, no, not really, because there is no one global English. There is no one standard English. Like I was saying earlier, we're defining the language in every single conversation. And depending on who is speaking with whom, that language is going to change. And they're going to use whatever 
words and whatever grammatical structures work to create understanding in that situation. Um, yes, we do see across the board some commonalities in how global varieties of English deviate from the gold standard, uh, but nothing that we can say 100% across the board, this is global business English, you know, that we could write a textbook on this new standard. We, we don't have that. And I don't think we should. And, um, you know, just looking, the differences between American and British, somehow, some way, and I'm sure the, the British teachers may disagree, but, you know, the American standard has also come to be accepted globally. Uh, I'm sure a lot of teachers in the UK might say, no, it's not, but, <laughs> you know, jokingly. Um, but we need to have that same kind of acceptance with other varieties of English, with Singapore English, with Indian English, with, you know, all the different varieties everywhere. Um, because as countries are developing their English capabilities, they're also developing their own style of the language and variety of the language that's strongly influenced by the native languages spoken in those regions. Um, and it's been really interesting out here and being out here in Asia since 06, basically, um, seeing that trend, you know, I think one of the most interesting countries right now is Vietnam, and they've had enormous advancement in their English language skills. When I was here in 06, I never looked to them as a market for my services because I thought they really needed to get the language skills higher and higher. And now I'm being invited to speak in Vietnam. I have a one-on-one -on -one client, a CFO in Vietnam. Um, so their language level is getting much higher. And, and again, it has another, another flavor to it, right? The way that they speak the language, the way they use the grammar is slightly different. Uh, and, and I think that's great. I mean, it's so exciting to me to see the world express itself in different ways, to see people express their cultures, their identities, uh, and their first languages through English, their culture through English. Um, and that's, oh, that brings up another totally different topic, but I'm just gonna tell you anyway. <laughs> um, kind of this, you know, we're also very tied up in the idea that language and culture are so linked you know, that um, when we're teaching English, we also need to teach them about afternoon tea because that's English, you know, or, or whatever it is. It's, it's just so silly, you know, and, and we forget that actually English is being used devoid of culture at this stage. When we're in international business settings, people are expressing their own language, their own cultures through the English language. So I believe we're seeing a, a massive separation of the American and British cultures from the English language. Also a big reason why I say get rid of the idioms, the slang, the sports analogies, because we're using English as a tool. It's purely a tool and it's allowing people to express their own cultures, their own identities. So cultural understanding becomes much more important because just because we're speaking the same language does not mean we're speaking the same culture. It does not mean that we're trying to take on the American or British or Australian culture simply because we're speaking English. We still need to adapt and have understanding for the context and the situation we're in. Uh, so I think that's another really important point uh, and another really interesting area of research in this shift toward uh, global Englishes and how we're using the language across borders and cultures. So that took me, that took us way off in another direction from wherever we started in that question. But man, I'm just so passionate about this topic. <laughs>
<laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, I mean, yeah. For example, you if if you're going to, for example, use English to do business in Japan, you can't bring along like British cultural values to that business negotiation because you could easily, you know, offend. Um, uh, it, you, yeah, you're right. You have to have an understanding of the culture that you're operating in, and it's it's not, it's it's nothing to do with the language. Right, and I think the cultural understanding is becoming much more important than the linguistic understanding, because you know that that Japanese person could say something, and you may interpret it very differently based on your cultural background without realizing that, oh no, he would never mean it that way. He used those words, but that's not his intention, right? So you have to have that cultural understanding. That's so much more important than the actual vocabulary and the grammar, I would say, when we're really looking at true global business and how these meetings are working, negotiations are working. Um, and you know, now that we've moved online, at least temporarily, but likely for a very long time, uh, it's becoming even more important because we have more contact, more global contact. It's so much easier. I'm hoping this will be a positive change because now people are going to hear a lot more accents. We've suddenly become more connected. So the, the languages are coming into more contact and hopefully that's going to give a lot of people who do not have English as their first language, a louder voice in the global community as they're participating in webinars, they're giving virtual talks, People in America can get online and, and watch a, a conference going on in Japan, whereas this wasn't happening prior to, it was a little bit, We've it's been happening, but not as widespread as, as it is now. So I'm hoping that will have a very positive effect on the, the speed of change when it comes to accepting and understanding English as a global lingua franca. I think it's interesting that 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 you know you you said before, for example, that uh, a word like um, accent reduction is kind of a toxic concept, um, and and I've actually seen accent coaches when you know who who maybe work with actors or or even professionals. Um, I think there's I've noticed a change in mindset now where it's more like we're not trying to reduce your accent, we're trying to give you extra accents. Um, and, and I, you know, so that you can be adaptable. And I'm wondering if, if like the key to being a really good communicator is not about focusing on one type of English more. It's more about having, having. We all do that a little bit naturally, right? The way that we speak with our closest family and the language we use with them versus the language we use with a boss, versus the language we use on stage or in a lecture hall, versus the language we use in a negotiation. I think that we're already chameleons. And that's one thing I've really loved seeing being in Singapore, for example, because also there, there are different levels of Singapore English. So we have Singlish, which is a language I can barely understand. There's so much, um, Chinese dialect mixed in, Malay mixed in. You really have to know, have a basis of the other languages to be able to understand true Singlish. And then they have Singapore English, which is an entirely different standard. Still has very different grammatical rules, different word stress patterns, different pronunciation, but I can understand it after about two, three months of tuning my ear really well. But I understand it just fine. And, um, and I learn every day new new ways of using it. But what's interesting, and I always tell people I'm coaching here in Singapore this, is that you know they're already so good at this. They know how to adapt. The way they speak to me 
you know, the, what they call the angmo, the, the red-haired person, which is what the, their term for uh, Caucasians, basically. The minute an angmo walks in the door, their entire language changes. So they speak in a very different way to me than they would turn and speak to their colleague. And they know how to do that in an instant. They know how to change and adapt and adjust their level of, of the language and how they're using it and how they play with the words. And they do it incredibly naturally uh, without thought. And so I think there is something to that. At the same time, I still don't know if I really agree with that idea of we're giving you many different dialects, you know, we're giving you many different accents to choose from, because the reality is uh, you can be an amazing pronunciation coach, but that person is never going to fully sound American. Uh, you know, the world's best dialect coaches, yes, they study dialect. I mean, they're the ones who work with the actors to make them sound like a specific thing. And usually when it comes to Oscars time, we're all talking about how horribly they did that accent, that fake accent. I think we finally come to the conclusion, we need to just get the person who has that accent to play that part because it's so easy for us now as we become more tuned into these different accents, it's easier for us to know when it's fake. And I think even when we're teaching people pronunciation, you can still hear when they're putting on an accent, when it, when, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think it's so much about learning different accents. It's about learning, you know, Jennifer Jenkins talks about the lingua franca core and the areas of specific sounds that are going to help with intelligibility. And I think that's the key, you know, having nice crisp T's saying internet instead of internet, like I do, uh, clarity instead of clarity, you know, the tapped, Tea that I like to do from America, um, but having a sharp T, using a more rhotic R, uh, you know, having certain word stress patterns, focusing on nuclear stress, nucleus of the, the tonal unit, all of those things that we know are really important in intelligibility, those are the things we need to focus on. Whether or not the vowel quality is just right, not so important. We tune our ear and we figure it out. Uh, does the TH have to be perfect? No, it doesn't matter how the TH sounds. And I tell my clients, I say, it's up to you because, you know, and this is the other critique, right? Because teachers will say, oh, well, you know, you're, you're not preparing them properly because the reality is if they don't do the TH right, they're not going to get the job or they're going to be discriminated against or blah, 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 blah. And to an extent, it's true. Like we're talking about the reality and the way we would love reality to be. And I try to give my clients both of those options. I say, listen, when it comes to intelligibility, everyone will understand you. You can pronounce the TH as an S, a Z, a D, a T, whatever you like, make any sound up you want. We are going to understand you. But, but we have to also be aware of the reality of the context of the situation. So if it is their American boss who sent them to me and the American boss who says, I can't understand you and the American boss who is not making any effort in communicating at all and has certain expectations and has control over that individual, then I say, but, big but, we know that we need to work on this when you're speaking to this individual. We know that if you're speaking to a fully American audience that they may feel annoyed listening to you say, da, 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 instead of da, da, da has nothing to do with intelligibility. It has to do with stereotype. It has to do with um, accent discrimination. Yet that is a true reality we are faced with. So we have to prepare them for both. So although I want the world to be one way, I know that sometimes depending on their context, uh, I may still need to prepare them for a reality 
that I don't necessarily like. Um, but I think it's important to have those conversations and have them understand the difference that, that for intelligibility, they don't need that and that they can choose. They can choose to keep their identity. They can choose to say, you know what? I know you understand me. You make an effort. And this is the way I speak. Uh, you know, and that's eventually the point I got to with my Danish. It's like, hey, you know what? You know, I have an accent. This is how I speak. You understand every single word I say. So do you want to speak English or what? Oh, no, 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 no. Your, your Danish is great. It's so charming. It's like, yeah, I'm not trying to be charming. Uh, but, you know, and, and these are the things that come up, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. And, and there, there, there is the, the reality we would really like to see that we want to change, but we don't always have power over that. And, but I think it does start with us in the classroom to start to change the, the mentality and address the real needs of the students when they say things like, I wanna sound like a native speaker, to turn that back on them and say, okay, well, what kind of native speaker? What do you mean? You know, oh, well, I wanna sound like you. Well, why do you wanna sound like me? What is, it about, what is it about the way I speak that you would like to sound that way? And then it comes, it, they never say, because you're American, never, 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 never. They'll say, well, you just speak so clearly. I can understand everything you say. You're so eloquent. You're so fluid, fluent. Uh, you know, th those are the things that they say. That's really what they want, not to sound like an American or the queen. What, what advice would you like to give to all of those teachers who, who maybe have grown up, um, you know, and they went through the training and they have these, you know, these, these old fashioned ideas really ingrained in their, in their mentality about, you know, the objective is being like a native speaker with a specific accent or that. I mean, what, what, what would you like to say to those teachers? Well, first of all, I mean, it doesn't, for some of them, it doesn't matter what I say right now because they're still going to believe I'm wrong <laughs> and that's okay. That's okay. Um, we've, we have been indoctrinated. Uh, our textbooks teach us this, our, our teachers teach us this. Um, and we are privileged because of this. There is an enormous amount of, of colonial leftovers in all of this, an enormous amount of white privilege in maintaining this status quo that um, only proper standard English is correct, right? So this is why we're seeing a lot of pushback on these newer ideas, because it means that a lot of people are going to have to give up their power and have an acceptance for others. So, so there's a huge, huge group of people who won't listen to me no matter what I say. For the, for the teachers who are sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I never even thought of it like this. Um, then, then it is about starting to question your assumptions, right? It's about saying, why, why do I feel that a native accent is better? What is it about a native uh, accent or standard English that I think is so much more important than just basic intelligibility and understanding. You know, start questioning the textbook, start questioning um, what kind of communication people are actually using. I, I think it's just very common. A, a student walks in and says, I want to learn, I, I want to speak like a native. Um, and they go, well, yeah, of course, everybody does, right? I mean, it's, it's something they've never, ever questioned, stopped and questioned because that's just the way it is, you know? So it's not until, you know, maybe hearing this, maybe watching my TEDx, maybe, you know, meeting another teacher or, or teaching in an international environment. It's not until then that you kind of open your eyes. It was the same for me. I, I never even thought about it until I came to Singapore 
and was faced with a very international environment and had my own client tell me that grammar doesn't matter before I was like, what, what, huh? Um, so it, it takes some kind of moment to, to have that assumption challenged and then to start thinking about it and processing it. So it's a process, um, but there's a lot of information out there uh, around uh, English as a lingua franca, a lot more now than you know, 15 years ago, but, the, but the, that's what's scary is the research has been around forever. I mean, it's been like 30 years that, that Jennifer Jenkins has been researching this and, and many others. Um, and I know you did an interview with her as well. So I think if they haven't seen that, they need to go and look at the interviews you've done with David Crystal, with Jennifer Jenkins. I mean, these are the heroes. I mean, make these people your heroes and learn everything that they, that they teach because they know what they're talking about. They've done the research. It's just that because the way our industry is designed, that research stays in the ivory towers. You know, I have uh, Jennifer Jenkins' book on my bookshelf. I, I have all it, but they're academic books. They cost like $100 a pop. No English teacher earning under $20 an hour can afford those books. The, the whole system is organized in a way that maintains this status quo from the testing to the publishing to the teaching. It is all there indoctrinating us to think a certain way and to teach our students in a certain way. And I think it's very refreshing to see more and more teachers now uh, challenging that status quo. I think it must be challenged. It's outdated uh, and, it, and it, really needs to, it really needs to change. So for the teachers out there who are open to, um, open to considering this alternative, you know, start reading about it, start learning about it, start listening, join the associations, join IATEFL, join TESL, join, you know, get into those groups and learn, learn, learn more about it. And especially about the cultural side of language and, and international usage, because that's really where we're using the language now more than in the native speaking countries, really. The great majority of people are dealing with other people learning English. That was kind of um, advice for teachers, but but obviously there's there's also as you've kind of you know mentioned before there's there's billions of people who are in a classroom um, learning the students and 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 they've also been indoctrinated in a similar way to to have needs and desires. So so what what would you like to say to to maybe the students who think that the objective is you know native and textbook and, and perfect accent? My heart always goes out to these learners. Um, also because, you know, I've been in a situation of, of speaking foreign languages. I have a bachelor's in German. I studied in Austria and Switzerland. I worked in Switzerland. I lived in Denmark eight years and learned Danish. Um, and, and I know, I really know what that feels like. I'm sure you do too, with Spanish. Uh, you know, I know what it feels like to, to actually be discriminated against because of my accent. Uh, I know what it feels like to walk into a store and have them assume I'm Danish because I, you know, my ancestry is actually Scandinavian. So I look like them, but then I open my mouth and it's just complete confusion on their faces because it's like, whoa, wait, what? Wait, where are you from? It's like, where am I from? I asked you to show me that shirt, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> why are we getting into this? Um, I, I really get it. I, I understand where that, that want comes from. 
to, to want to belong, right? I think that's really what it's about. It's wanting to belong and not always have pointed out to you that you're different, that you're an other, that you're from somewhere else. So I do understand that. Um, but I think that we all need to be confident in the fact that we can belong and remain unique. We can belong and keep our own identities, our own cultures, our accents hugely define who we are. You know, what if I were to say and go along with this story that RP is the only accent and I can't teach pronunciation unless I have an RP accent. So I go and study and I change my accent to an RP accent. What on earth would that say about me, right? And it's funny because we don't think about it. Like people would say, well, no, you're American. Why would you ever change? But okay, you're German. Why would you ever change? You're, you know, you're Chinese. Why would you change? It, it's, it's a part of you. It, it identifies you. It identifies your history. Some people will say, I don't want to identify with that history. Everyone has very different stories, very different needs. But, um, you know, I would say to all of them, I, I just think we so desperately need global voices. We so desperately, especially right now in the world, we need opinions and arguments and debates and we need culture we need to know different ideas we, we need to hear different people speaking up than the status quo and the only way we can do that is by having them have that confidence to speak up and and speak in their own voices um, and see the beauty in that you know it, how boring would this world be if everyone sounded like you and me it would just it would be awful um, and and so I hope, my, my hope is always to, to give confidence to these learners, to help them to build their confidence, to, to let them know that what they believe is their bad English is not bad at all, that there's no such thing as good and bad when it comes to language. It's about connection. It's not about perfection. And, and they need to just focus on that and on the relationship and the connection they create with a person. Uh, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be textbook. And in fact, that could hurt them in the long run because nobody really talks like that. Uh, so so that's, that's what I try to, to prepare them for and, and say, you know what? No, I'm not going to teach you that kind of English because when you go out in the world, that's not the way people speak. Um, so, so it's about giving them a real, the, the reality of, of, of how English is being used, introducing them to all different accents, Let, tell them to, um, you know, I love to say, find uh, an idol that you have from your own country. Uh, somebody who's very famous, who goes on TV and does interviews in English. Listen to their accent. You can, they're, they're perfectly intelligible. You know, you look up to that person, that sports star, that movie star, that politician, whoever it might be. Listen to how they speak. Do they sound American? Do they sound like they're speaking the Queen's English? No. And they can be proud of that accent. That is their identity. And anyone in the world knows that woman is German, that man is Spanish, um, and, and that's okay. That's okay, that's what makes it interesting. I can't believe it's taken me so long to, to have a conversation with you. That's how I'm really feeling right now. Oh, we're soulmates, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just, you know, um, you really, you're, you're speaking to my heart right now. It's, um, it's unbelievable, and, and I, it just makes me happy to know that there's people out there like you who, who are talking about these things, um, and, 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 you know, not just that, but like your platform, like you're talking to, you know, people in in high places. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's, I just feel like that, <laughs> that, you know, pe people are, 
well, actually, David Crystal said this to me. He said that, um, you know, because I was complaining about how how is it possible that we're still in this mess, basically. I was complaining to him about it. He said, he said, Christian, you know, you have to remember that global English is, relatively speaking, a pretty new phenomenon. And we're all trying to adjust. Um, and 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 I just I just wish people would hurry up and adjust. I know <laughs> they need to hurry up and adjust. <laughs> like it's been long enough. Like we're in the postmodern kind of English period now. You know, the the world is different. Like you said, it's two it's two billion people. It's not a hundred thousand. It's two billion. Like we need to wake up. Yeah, colonialism is over. You know, I, and I think people need to remember the history of language and the relationship between language and power. English language has been used as a dominating force in the world for many, many years. And we really, we, we, you know, we've gotten rid of colonialism, but we haven't gotten rid of the whole entire mindset around it. This is old fashioned thinking and uh, we can't continue to try to use language as a source of power uh, and to maintain our privilege as native speakers, you know, I really, I have the goal of helping all these amazing leaders I work with in Asia. I want to see them, you know, uh, running these, these massive companies. I wanna see more of them on these platforms. We talk about getting women on the boards. Um, how, what, what if we look at the, the boards of the Fortune 500s, how many of the individuals on those boards are non-native speakers? It's quite shocking. When you look at even the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, it's only something like 10 or 11% that are not, uh, that do not have English as their first language. Uh, and that's a little bit scary. It means that this white privilege, we are still dominating the world. The, the native speaker paradigm is dominating the world from a not only a linguistic perspective, but a power perspective. And that's where it gets very, very dangerous. And I, I hope that with the changes that we're seeing in the world today, um, that, that we will also wake up to the fact that our mindsets around language have to change. And that's the only way we can move forward, that we can truly be global, that we can really accept others, that we can be truly inclusive. Um, is that we have to let go of these ideas of ownership over English, the power that English provides us um, and the privilege it provides us. I mean, I am very, very aware of that. I'm very aware that uh, one of the main reasons probably I've been so successful in Asia is because of the way that I look and the way that I speak. And as hypocritical as that is, um, I feel that that puts an extra responsibility on me to share this message and to make sure it changes because I know the reason I've been put in the position I'm in is due to this very warped reality and belief and indoctrination around the fact that the way I speak and the way I look is better than here. And that's absolutely wrong. Uh, and so I have to use the position I've been given now to continually talk about this and, and try to change things because if we don't change it, who will, you know? And that's why I think it's so important for the teachers to really have an understanding of this. Um, also, this fight against um, you know, non-native teachers and this whole native non-native divide in teaching and schools that don't that only hire someone because they were born in the right country. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. They aren't teachers, they don't have any qualifications, but because they sound like me, they can be a teacher. It's insane. It's insanity. Um, and so that's what I mean by the whole entire industry is a mess. 
uh, and, and the way that we look at language and the way that we continue this horrible system of, of privilege around English and, and we've got to change it. And I don't know how. I think it's conversations like this that hopefully um, move the bar just a little bit, but, but it's going to take a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, look, I, I'm, I'm in a similar position. You know, I came to Spain um, and uh, 10 years ago, uh, I didn't know anything about language. Um, I, I literally, like, I didn't know the difference between a noun and an adjective. And what did I do? Um, I rented a space, I put up a Union Jack, and I started teaching. You know, I mean, how unfair is that? And and people came to me. They're like, oh my God, he, he you know, he's a native speaker. Oh my God, let, let's send our children to have classes with him. And, and, and in fact, so it may be in a similar way to you, like, the self-awareness of, of, of the privilege that I had, seriously unfair privilege, you know, I, 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 it's taken me 10 years to kind of, to, 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 to come to terms with that. And so now, you know, similar to you, I want to use my platform to say, hey, you know, this isn't fair. Let's, let's not do that anymore because I don't think any other industries would accept it. You know, it's like, you know, we don't send engineers to build bridges if they've, if they've never studied engineering for a single day. Like, it's just not fair. Right, yeah. right. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. It's crazy that we can get away with this, but it shows how backwards society still is when it comes to this, you know, and, and how, how much this colonial mentality is still here. And, and, you know, there's a lot of economics in it as well. Wherever the money is, the power is. Um, but, you know, let's see, the, the <laughs> centers of influence are shifting uh, very quickly. So you never know what will happen. But I don't think English is going anywhere, uh, primarily because it's so widespread due to colonialism. It's so widespread. You know, China, of course, has billions of speakers, but it's only spoken in China. So in order for a language to become a lingua franca, it has to be widespread. I mean, Spanish, one of the fastest growing languages, uh, spoken in a lot more areas of the world, maybe that could one day, um, <clears throat> one day be a rival, but, but really, um, yeah, it's, it's very scary. I love that example of, uh, we don't send an engine, you don't send someone to go build a bridge if they haven't studied engineering. That's, that's a really good analogy because it's exactly that. It's exactly that. And we can't allow this to continue. Um, and I have had critique for that as well, you know, where, uh, you know, on, on my TEDx and people saying, oh, the irony, right? You know, the, the white Westerner saying that we need to respect, you know, and, and it's, it's the same that we see in gender, uh, that that argument that, oh, well, you're a man, so how can you talk about feminism? It's like, you know, just because I'm not a non-native doesn't mean I don't understand the challenges, especially I think that teachers who speak additional languages, I think we understand the challenges more. And I think that we're usually a lot quicker to accept this idea of English as a global language because because we've lived it, you know, we really do understand the, the challenges they're facing uh, and the discrimination they face when they speak a foreign language. Um, so, so yeah, I do believe we have a right to talk about it. And I do believe that we are the ones who have to talk about it because it's the people who have the power who have to change it. And it won't change until we stand up and say, this isn't right. Um, and, and that's, so that's the perspective I come from with this. And I'm very happy that I got to meet you and, and hear that you're on the same page, because I think that there are a lot of us out there. There are, there are more than you would believe, uh, of teachers who have always felt this way, you know, who have been teaching this way for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, they, they aren't, it, it, and, and I think 
the teachers who don't necessarily agree with us, I don't think it's any fault of their own. I, I really don't. Um, it, it's just the way we've been taught. So yeah, yeah it's going to take some time. But <laughs> hopefully this conversation gets us one little baby step closer. <laughs> uh, I, I, I really hope so. Um, well, look, I just want to say thank you for, 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 for your, well, for sharing your passion because um, it's just so obvious. Your, your passion is bleeding out of every pore. Mm, yeah thank you yeah i i just i feel very very strongly about it um and you know some days i'm angry about it some days i'm sad about it <laughs> but, but you know what can we do we have to just keep doing what we do and help as many people as we can and build their confidence and you know seeing seeing one of my clients go and and get 25 million in funding from the board of directors in america who have never shown them any respect you know those are the big wins where i think okay we can do this, you know, we can make these changes and um, and it really doesn't matter what level they're at. It, it's just as important for the student getting up to give their presentation for their final exam, you know, uh, to be able to give them that confidence to stand up and, and do that and be successful and understand that, yeah, they're good enough, you know? I mean, who are we to say you're not good enough? Um, it's, it's just, yeah, the bad English, it's good enough. You know, you're good enough. Um, and, and don't be afraid to share your message with the world. We need it. We really need it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Christian.